As we jump back into Ephesians, it would be helpful to review to some degree, remembering that this letter was an expression of Paul's ministry to the Christians in Ephesus, having spent some two, maybe even three years with them in person. Paul taught them for many hours every day. He taught them sound doctrine. All the while, in Ephesus, the Artemis cult was prevalent. Many, many worshippers of the goddess Artemis would go and worship her at the temple every day. Meanwhile, Paul would teach those who had been born again. And one of his main concerns was to impress upon them the need not to fear those pagan worshippers, not to fear in light of any pressure that might come their way, but to understand that they are the real temple, that they are the people of God, and that through their obedience, God would honor them. As we read through Ephesians, seemingly there are no issues in the church, at least not at this stage of the writing of Paul's letter. It seems like these six chapters are simply an expression of the doctrine that he taught them when he was with them. You can think of Ephesians as a condensed version of his teaching to the saints that he had given them over the course of those several years. And you'll remember chapter 1 is such a wonderfully rich chapter, a long extended eulogy where Paul expounds the blessings of being in Christ. His exhortation is that they would bless the Father in response to the blessings they have received. If you want to know what it means to be found in Christ, there are few better places in Scripture to turn to than Ephesians 1. We then move into Ephesians 2 and 3, and Paul moves from the individual blessings to the corporate blessings. The emphasis very much in chapters 2 and 3 is on the unity that we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. In particular, as you'll remember, Paul is eager to remind them that whereas they were once Jew and Gentile, living completely separate lives, having no need to speak to one another, far less share their very lives with one another. Now they are found as brother and sister in Christ, one new creation through the gospel. We get then finally to chapter 4, and it is a turning point in the letter. Paul at chapter 4 moves from laying the foundation to speaking about the responsibility or the implication of being found in Christ. You can think of Ephesians broadly speaking in two halves, one, two, and three. Here's the theological truth of your salvation, especially as it relates to you being in the church. Chapters four, five, and six, here's how you respond. Here are the implications for your lives practically day by day. Foremost amongst those implications is very simply that now you ought to think like a Christian. Foremost amongst the responsibilities that come with being in Christ is that you think like a Christian. 
The reason Paul labors that, especially in verses 17 and following of chapter 4, is because, as we've noted a number of times, your every action is only ever an outworking of your thoughts. Your actions, your behavior, your words are only ever downstream of thoughts that you have previously thought. And so it is critical if we are to walk like a Christian, if we are to not walk as the Gentiles do, that we are first and foremost to think biblically. And you remember, Paul says in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There's the connection that he establishes between thought life and behavior. We spent some time over the last few weeks considering what it means to think like a Christian, what it means to develop a biblical worldview. And one thing I'll say again, just by way of reminder, is that the Christian is to be a student, and central to your life is to be the meditative life. Central to any Christian's daily practice routine is to be the discipline of meditation, setting your minds upon the truths of Scripture. It is through the habitual, persistent, setting your mind upon the truth of Scripture that you learn to walk in a way that honors God. Do not think that if you aren't in the practice of meditating upon God's Word, that you will consistently honor God with your behavior. It starts first in the mind. Now, from there... Paul now, in verses 25 through 32, looks at what that behavior, what that behavior is. Assuming that you've heeded his exhortations in the previous section, and you understand the responsibility that you have as a Christian to think biblically, here's then how your feet should follow. The title of the sermon is Following Your Thoughts Like a Christian. You think upon the gospel. You think upon what is true. That's a discipline that you pursue daily. And then you allow that to affect your behavior, your actions. And Paul gives five imperatives in total in this section that we'll break down and We'll cover just the first three this evening. Central to all of the imperatives he gives is the principle of truth or truthful living. And the reason for that, again, it connects to the previous passage, is because, as you'll remember, in verse 21, he said, you have learned Christ You heard about him and were taught in him. And then he adds that important clause, the truth is in Jesus. You learned him. You apprehended him. As we heard tonight through testimonies, you apprehended Christ savingly. You kept learning about him. And all the while, there is an understanding that the truth is in him. It's not that Paul says Jesus says what is true. 
though that is factually accurate. He says so much more than that, the truth is found in Jesus Christ. Now just consider the implications. The truth is in Jesus. If the truth is in Jesus and we are in him, then we of all people should demonstrate a strong and evident connection with the truth in every area of our lives. Christians should be people of the truth. And thus, it flows naturally from what Paul has said in the previous section. It flows naturally for him to command us, to instruct us to live truthfully. Specifically, the three commands that we will look at tonight, Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus Ephesus, that they are to speak truthfully, they are to relate truthfully, and they are to work truthfully. There's our three points for this evening, all stemming from the reality that the truth is in Jesus. If we are in Him and the truth is in Him, then we should be people of the truth. And as we set our mind on Him, it starts to affect our behavior. Specifically, Paul is concerned that we speak truthfully, that we relate truthfully, and that we work truthfully. Beginning then with the exhortation to speak truthfully. Verse 25, therefore... There's our connecting word to show that this is not a new argument, an isolated thought, but it flows on from what he's just been saying. Therefore, having put away falsehood, you are a new creation in Christ. You have put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. It's a very simple command that he gives to us. Interestingly, The words here are taken from the prophet Zechariah. Paul quotes from the prophet Zechariah when he says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And that's important. Anytime you see a New Testament author leaning upon an Old Testament text, you can be sure they want us to understand the theological relationship between the two. You can be sure that they're quoting that Old Testament text for a reason. It is not the case that Paul just happened to like the way Zechariah stated this. There are many ways Paul could have told the Christians, let each one speak of the truth with his neighbor. He intentionally quotes from the prophet Zechariah. And in so doing, he is drawing from a much broader theological context than just the words in view. Now, it would actually help us to consider why Zechariah said these words. So I invite you to turn back just briefly this evening to the prophet Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament and chapter 8, where we find these words. Zechariah falls within what we call the post-exilic corpus. The post-exilic corpus, that is the post-exilic prophets, and 
Ezra, Nehemiah, the post-exilic writings, are some of the most readily applicable portions of the Old Testament for the New Testament church. I think they're some of the most neglected. I wonder the last time that you sat down and had your devotionals in Zechariah. They're some of the most neglected portions of the Old Testament, and yet they are some of the most readily applicable for the New Testament church. I'll explain why I say that. The post-exilic community are a group of people that have returned from their time in Babylon. They're back in the land. They've undergone a time of punishment and discipline. And now they are waiting. They are waiting for the Lord to establish the remainder of his promises that he had given formally in the pre-exilic prophets. They're awaiting people. As the post-exilic community waits, the foremost issue that confronts them time and time again is that of holiness. They're back in the land. There are other people in the land around them, people who are not surrendered and submitted to the Lord. And the danger is that they start to look like these people. They start to look like the other people in the land. They have to be reminded time and again by the post-exilic prophets of their responsibility to live a sanctified, set-apart life. Now, that's the post-exilic message in a nutshell. Fast forward to the New Testament age and see the parallels. We are a waiting people. You need to think of yourself as a waiting people. We are here waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he has given in Scripture. Specifically, we are waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Foremost amongst our issues as we wait is that of holiness. We are surrounded by people who do not worship the Lord, who do not love the Lord, and the constant danger is that we would be tempted to live like them. Throughout church history, we see the influence of society on the church and a constant reminder for the church to sanctify itself, to live a set-apart life. And so there are strong parallels between the post-exilic community and the New Testament church, which is why I say so often the post-exilic corpus in the Old Testament is one of the most readily applicable parts of Scripture for us today. It's very, very helpful to spend time in this part of the Bible and to be exhorted and encouraged as we wait for the revelation of Christ. Now, with all of that said... Consider what Zechariah speaks to his people at that time. Chapter 8, verse 1, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. 
and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This is the glorious vision that the Lord sets forth for the people who have returned from exile. He's encouraging them. He is telling them that he has a plan and he intends to fulfill it. Now, with that glorious vision having been set forth, look at what he then says. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You see, the people were waiting, but it was not a waiting where they did nothing. It was to be, as with us, a very active kind of waiting. God expected his people in Old Testament times, just as with us, to be getting on with the work of the ministry. We are to be working actively, serving the Lord, serving one another as we anticipate that he will be faithful to his promises. Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or Any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, The heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Again, he's encouraging them to wait actively. What does that active waiting look like? Verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now there's a lot we can say about Zechariah and the theology that he is serving to us in these words but I want you to notice the connection between this chapter and Ephesians chapter 4. Paul understands the parallels. He's writing to a waiting people. We are waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to wait actively. 
And the theology of Zechariah is that as you are active in your waiting, as you trust upon the Lord that he will come good on his promises and you respond by serving him and serving one another, he is pleased to use that service as a means of moving forward redemptive history. It is when you put your faith in the Lord and you serve in response that God is now working to move his plan forward. And the command that Zechariah gives specifically, the way in which their hands are to be strong and they're to be actively waiting, is very, very simple. Speak the truth to one another. A profound influence and impact that you can have, not just in one another's lives, but in redemptive history as you commit to speaking the truth to one another. And Paul picks that up and he places it in Ephesians, having just told us the truth is in Christ. Now as his people, speak the truth to your neighbor. Speak the truth to one another. And by inference, everything else Zechariah says is also true. The Lord hates the false oath. You are not to devise evil in your hearts against one another. You are to speak the truth to one another as a reflection of what is in your heart concerning one another. It is by speaking the truth that we join in with God's plan to move us towards the second coming of Christ. Now back to Ephesians. And Paul alludes to that very reality in the next Clause, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So there, Paul is bringing into view again the doctrine that we all are members of the body of Christ. And there's a rich theology of the body of Christ in Ephesians alone, but remember, one of the things that Paul has taught us is that the role of the church is to grow into the fullness of our head. Going back to chapter 4, verse 13, what does it mean to be part of the body? In part, it is to grow into the fullness of our head who is Christ. That's our role. That's why we're here. We're not to be idle. We're not to sit and wait and do nothing. We are to be active in serving one another, understanding that there is a maturing into our head who is Christ as we wait for Him. And a very, very simple way in which that reality comes to pass Sunday by Sunday, week after week, in the pews, in each other's homes and in each other's lives, is that we are committed to speaking the truth to one another. It begins with your thought life. I think in our minds, perhaps that is one place that we are most prone to indulge a lie. You maybe read these words and think, well, I'm not someone who is given to telling lies about other people, but consider in our thought life is where we are most prone to indulge a lie. We can so easily think upon that which is not true. We can so easily allow our minds to go places resting on that which is not true. 
And as we meditate upon lies, we cause all manner of problems both personally and with others. It's as we meditate upon lies that we give ground for anxiety and fear and bitterness and eventually deceit. We are to think upon what is true. You are to guard your minds against that which is not true. As you think about one another in this body, do not allow yourself to think upon that which is not true of someone else. Don't allow your mind to go somewhere on, on, on somebody that is not true of them, but think upon which is that which is true. And certainly fixate upon Christ in whom is the truth so that when you show up on a Sunday and you interact with one another, you speak the truth. Now practically that will mean from time to time we say hard things to one another and that's okay if it's out of love. It also means that we will be people who are continuously encouraging one another. As you think upon what is true of each other, that gives you great grounds to encourage one another. The bottom line is that we are to be people of integrity. We must mean what we say, and we must say that which we believe. We must speak the truth. This is how we honor Christ, and this is how we show that we are people of the truth. That's the first exhortation. The second one, closely related, is that we should relate truthfully. We speak truthfully, we relate truthfully. Paul goes on in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. This is a fun verse to think through. Fun until you consider that you have to stand up and explain it to a listening church. You better get it right. Is there an imperative in Ephesians to be angry? <laughs> well, there is, but what does it mean? Could God really command us to be angry with one another? Again, understanding the sense of the verse comes by way of recognizing that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. You have to study your Old Testament to understand the New. And here is another quote from the Old Testament, specifically from the Psalter, Psalm 4. No need to turn there. I'll explain the theology of the Psalm to you, and hopefully that will help us to understand what Paul is saying here. As some have sought to reconcile what Paul is saying in verse 26, they have given it an, a note of concessiveness, if you are angry, then at least don't sin in your anger. But that takes away from the plain sense of the text, which is, in its form, a command. In Psalm 4, the psalmist is lamenting. He's crying out to God. He's assailed by his enemies, and he cries out to God for God to hear him, and he rejoices in the fact that God does hear him. And then you get to verse 4 of the psalm, 
And the psalmist turns, as it were, to address his enemies. And he says to his enemies in Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry, but don't sin. And the verb there in the original language of Psalm 4 carries with it a note of, of trembling, as it were, of internal anger. The idea is that the psalmist is addressing his enemies and he's saying, I know you're my enemies and I can't change that. It's up to you to become people of God, to join the covenant people. I can't change your status, but I can instruct you concerning your actions and my instruction to you is to keep your anger inside. Trembling be angry, Don't let it consume you. Internally, I understand that you don't take any pleasure in me, but don't allow that displeasure to master you because there will be consequences for your actions. And so, Paul takes that verse, he pushes it into his letter to the Ephesians. Can I stand here this evening and say, You must not ever get angry. I can't. Not least because of this verse and more broadly because many times in Scripture we see that God himself gets angry. We've spoken before on Sunday mornings about righteous anger, that that category that we have of righteous anger, an anger that comes from a displeasure in evil and sin and wickedness. But even there, Even if our anger were to be righteous, Paul's instruction to the Christians in Ephesus is that it would never master them. Even if our anger were to be righteous, it would never consume us and control us and get the better of us. It would be held down. It would be a self-controlled anger. In our anger, we would not sin. It is a command towards self-control. And so concerned is Paul that we would have self-control over our righteous anger that he puts a time stamp on it. Look what he says next, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So he says, even acknowledging that there will be times of righteous anger, control it, don't let it master you, and by the way, it is never to go on longer than an absolute maximum one day. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now why is this? Most likely, because if we were allowing our anger to simmer away, if we allowed our anger to be prolonged over many days or weeks, most likely in our sinfulness, it would become a pathway for bitterness and pride, slander and deceit. Again, stemming from the fact that the truth is in Christ and Paul's concern is that we show ourselves to be people of the truth. Paul is concerned that if your anger rests within you and you don't deal with it and you don't reconcile with the one who has offended, if it keeps persisting within you, it is going to give rise to pride and bitterness and even slander and deceit. 
Anger is one of the most prevalent ways in which we are given to speak about others that which is not true of them. The anger consumes us. Our pride keeps growing, and so we allow ourselves to say about others that which is not reflective of their character or their actions. And so as one commentator rightly wrote, the day of anger should also be the day of reconciliation. The day of anger should also be the day of reconciliation. This is true in your marriage. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's true in the workplace. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. It is to be especially true within the church. If you are here for any length of time, if you're genuinely invested in body life, as I've said many times before, you will be wronged. Bethany is not a perfect church by any means. It's a group of blood-bought sinners. And so we come together, and as you invest, as I hope you are doing, fully in body life, you will be wronged. And every time that you are wronged, there is an opportunity to reconcile. And your reconciliation must be quick, because if it is not, you are giving an opportunity to the devil. Verse 27 don't let your son, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There is a, a consequential argument here. If you are not quick to reconcile and you are content to stew in your anger, understand the devil has won. The devil is winning. The devil has an opportunity that he will not waste. And as I've said so many times before, the more I read Scripture, the more I see unity as of the utmost concern to God. He wants His people to be unified. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. This is how we honor Christ, and this is how we show that we are people of the truth. Third exhortation from Paul is to work truthfully. The truth is in Jesus. We think upon him. We pursue the meditative life. And as we set our minds on Jesus, our feet will follow. The truth is in him. We are to be people of the truth, which means we speak truthfully, we relate truthfully, and we work truthfully. Paul says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The, the grammar of the verse is interesting. It does seem that Paul is addressing a, a situation. It does seem that Paul is giving a command to stop stealing. It's not the case that Paul is saying, if it should ever come to pass that one of you steals, at that point you need to stop. Rather, 
The grammar of this verse indicates Paul is addressing a current situation and he's saying it needs to stop. The thief needs to stop stealing. So the question is then, where was their dishonesty of this nature in the congregation? Most likely it was not between believers in the church. Again, there's no indication in the letter that there were internal problems. And most likely it was not even of a nature between the slave and his master, the slave stealing from the master. The consequences for him would have been far too great for him to conceive of doing such a thing. In light of what he says for the rest of the verse, most likely the type of stealing that Paul is addressing is that between a normal employer and employee, the type where the workman is taking advantage of his situation. He's taking advantage of the goodness of his employer to give him work, and he's seeing ways in which he can gain that are not reflective of his work. It's the dishonesty with the timesheet, not logging accurately the number of hours that you've worked in the office. It's the printing of reams and reams of paper for your own personal project. It's using business time to pursue your own projects. It's a very subtle kind of stealing. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to justify. And Paul says that kind of stealing needs to stop. You need to work. You need to be people of integrity. The thief needs to steal no longer. Rather, let him labor. And the verb there, to labor, involves everything that you might involve, expect. It is very much an intensive, hard-fought-after, tiring, exhausting kind of work. Let him labor. Paul says, this is life. You need to get on with the work that God has set before you, and nobody has it easy, and that's how God has designed us to live east of Eden until Christ returns. You have to labor. Indeed, you labor in such a way that the work that you are doing is honest. In the workplace, you are known as being a person of the utmost integrity. You are honest working with your own hands. And the point there is not that Paul only recognizes the kind of jobs that you do with your hands, but rather whatever is your work, it is your own. Or, to put it another way, he is landing upon the biblical truth that you reap what you sow, and he's saying you have to sow exactly what you reap. You need to make sure that your reward, your wages, is reflective of the work you have done. Even if you see a shortcut to a way of getting in wages not reflective of the work you have done, that doesn't matter. Even if you see the unbeliever taking advantage of such shortcuts, that doesn't matter. You need to be one who conducts himself in the workplace with the utmost integrity. And Paul, I would say, is a primary example of this. You remember how he was with the Christians in Thessalonica and he labored night and day so that no one would accuse him of taking from them. 
He preached the gospel and he could rightly have demanded payment from them for being a minister of the word to the church there. And yet he stayed up through the night so as to labor with his hands to earn his keep so as to present himself as a man of the utmost integrity. Now notice what Paul says after that. Until when do you labor? When does the laboring stop? Is it that you labor with your own hands until you have enough? That's not what Paul says. Let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He labors exhausting himself, doing tirelessly whatever is the work that God has provided, not merely until the point where he can provide for his own family. He labors to such an extent that he now has an abundance. Paul says you labor to such a point that you now have something extra to share with anyone in need. Now, Consider again this command within the broader context. Paul has just told us we are new creations in Christ. Paul has just told us he has renewed you utterly into the likeness of God, into righteousness and holiness, verse 24. And the new creation, the Christian, will constantly be undergoing a process of putting off and putting on. It is the process of sanctification until the Lord Jesus appears again. You put off your sin and you put on the new creation in Christ. You keep putting off and you're putting on. Consider just how great is the transformation towards which Paul now exhorts us. The thief becomes the philanthropist. The gospel has so altered your life that the thief no longer steals, but rather he is one for no, known for giving out of his abundance. And his wealth comes from his own hands, his own labor. He is a man of integrity, and everyone who cares to look knows about it, and he readily gives to anyone who needs. That is the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. We are to be people of the truth because the truth is in Jesus. He is not with us here bodily, but the world looks at the church to form their conclusions about him. How is it that they will know that this man is worthy of our whole lives? How is it that the world will look at the church and form the right conclusions about Jesus, but for transformed lives? How are we to put off and to put on, Paul tells us exactly here, we are to be people of the truth. Because the truth is in Jesus. And so as we speak truthfully, as we relate truthfully, and as we work truthfully, then the church will grow into the stature of the fullness of Christ. And all around us will see something of his glory. May that be true of this church. Let's pray now to close. Our Father, we give you thanks for Paul's exhortations to us here this evening.
We give you thanks for the truths that we've been reminded of. We are new in Christ, and the truth is in Him. Our thought lives are everything. What we think gives rise to our behavior again. I pray that we would be those whose minds are set upon Jesus. And may our actions follow. Teach us to be those who speak the truth. Father, teach us to be those who say what we believe, who mean what we say. May we be people of integrity with our words, understanding the importance of speaking the truth as we seek to represent Christ. Father, please, I pray that you'd help us to relate to one another truthfully. Help us to deal with our anger quickly. To exercise self-control, may our anger never have the better of us. May we be disciplined to not let the sun go down on our anger. To reconcile with one another in the home, in the workplace, in the church. We want to relate to one another in a way that reflects the glory of Christ. And I pray that we would work truthfully to be people of the utmost integrity in the workplace, laboring with our own hands, receiving for the work that we have done, laboring to such a degree that we are ready to give from an abundance that we have. This is the transforming power of the gospel. May it be true in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.